Hello and welcome to Two Oceans Vibe Radio. I'm Susanna Kennedy and I'm going to be with you all the way through till 2 p.m. today. As you know, this show is focused on continuing the conversation around gender-based violence and finding solutions and finding things that we can actually do um, to help us find a better situation in South Africa and all over the world, because I do believe that it's not only a South African problem, I do believe it's a worldwide problem. To do this, I've invited many different guests, but one thing that I haven't invited yet is an actual criminal lawyer. And I thought that this was important to speak to um, not only the, the victims of criminal violence, but um, also their families to understand what is needed, what you should be doing, what you shouldn't be doing, um, what the best practice is. And so Justin Howard very kindly gave me his time yesterday and I chewed his ear off and then realized that we better just get on to um, to Ocean's Vibe and have a proper discussion around this. And he's going to be in studio with us today. Justin, thank you so much for being here and thank you for giving of your time. How are you doing? Uh, an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm doing well and it's a, a good, good topic to be talking about and conversation that needs to be had. Yes, absolutely. I think that it is a very necessary conversation to be had. Um, let's just talk a little bit about you. What is your background as a lawyer? Just so that the listeners understand where you've come from. I'm, uh, I'm currently completing my second year of articles at Schindler's Attorneys in Johannesburg, Melrose Arch. I obtained my LLB at the University of Pretoria. I specialize now in criminal law, but my focus during my university studies was on feminist jurisprudence in the legal sphere. And for people who are not, um, not aware of what that language actually means, can you put that in lay terms for the listeners? Happy to do so. So, so I focus on the philosophy of law and um, the ethos behind and principles behind law and why law is made and what law impacts society. Okay, amazing. And you said with an emphasis on feminism. Um, let's talk a little bit about that because for me, I believe that our law system in South Africa is sorely failing its women. It's not protecting its women. So help me clarify where it is actually protecting us and, and where you believe it's maybe failing us. Sure. So inherently, when we look at things like a legal system, there's, I would almost imagine, there's an abhorrent patriarchal society. And, you know, we continue to, uh, year by year, inch by inch, try and diminish the gross disparity between the inequalities in, in things like the legal system. But currently, you know, I think, I think unfortunately, the truth is that the legal system fails us as a populace of the society. So mm. not only are we being failed as, as men and as women and as members of the African society, um, there are obviously certain areas where we, we are lacking. And um, I think, I think it's in, in victim support. If I was to narrow it down, I would say it's victim support where we really struggle um, to get a grasp on, on the issues at hand. Hmm. So at the moment, um, you know, women feel like I know because I, I have done it myself and I've spoken to a lot of women about this, that there's almost no point in reporting an incident because of the lack of support, first of all, 
um, and also the shame, the shaming of being a victim in our society. Um, what is the, what are the things that women need to know and should be doing if something happens to them? And why is it so important to actually do something? I think there's there's a couple of things that you've mentioned there, so I want to just tackle yeah. them systematically. So, so firstly, the psychology behind victim shaming is, is it's immense. Um, the difficulty that an individual has going and reporting a crime within themselves for fear of the repercussions that they would face. Um, it's often discussed that women will, that there's the, the victim blame mentality that, well, no, I put myself in that situation or she was wearing skimpy clothes or she was coming onto me. We have, we have psychological and societal issues that hamper people coming forward with um, laying complaints or reporting of crimes. And, and that's something that, unfortunately, it, it's very difficult to tackle on the, the, the end of the spectrum where, where you go to complete the crime. The, this, this, this speaks to more of a healthy mindset when it comes to the education of children, um, particular subjects like life orientation, children in school should be dealing with these sorts of issues rather than, you know, what I think what they're being taught now. But we need to instill a mentality within the, the, the generations that are coming forward that reporting crime needs to be a priority aside mm. from psychological aspects of it. That, that needs to be treated separately. Um, yeah. You know, so on, I, that, I do on, yeah. on that note, like exactly what you're talking about now, the the victim mentality and that actually stopping women, so many women. I know that's what stopped me. I was like, oh my goodness, I feel so guilty. How did I put myself in that situation? You know, how, how could I put myself in that situation when it should be a situation that you can completely trust because they should, you shouldn't be violated just because you are feeling a bit vulnerable, you know, or whatever it is. And so I think that that's a huge thing. Um, I mean, even this week I was speaking to somebody who was, um, was raped and she, um, she had gone to a work function and um, it was her first work function with the company. It was like a welcome to new employees. And she had one drink and woke up the next morning in a man's bed and she um, she was a virgin at the time, and she was bloodied. She had definite, and she was sore, so she had definitely been penetrated. And she felt so ashamed because she was young, and she thought, oh, "How could I have accepted a drink from someone? I should have known better." But the reality is that we shouldn't have to worry about these things. And so I think what you're saying about teaching from a societal point of view, right at the root of it is not only um, teaching women to go and actually um, lay a claim and all of that, but also changing the mindset around what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable. And how do we do that? Where do we start with that? I mean, that's such a, it's such a core fundamental societal problem. Like how do we tackle something like that? These are these are such big questions that people yeah. far smarter and wiser than me are still trying to figure out. And and obviously, you know, it is difficult for me to give the best perspective that I can. I I myself, I'm a, I'm a I'm a white 
heterosexual male that um, ha has been privileged for the majority of my life, it's very difficult for me to, when trying to sympathize and empathize, for me to not have to face that, that difficulty in acknowledging my perspective and my bias and, and the, the privileges and prejudices that I haven't had to face. Um, but when it comes to accepting that when, when misconduct, when negative behavior, um, when, when a crime, an offense, when, when a bad is done, the good must be there to counteract it. And the good there is then in using restorative justice, using um, the criminal justice system to have that behavior corrected. And then it's twofold. The, the, the restorative justice and the fact that a wrong has been committed, we need to right that wrong. The person who committed that offense needs to be punished for it, um, for, their, for their own rehabilitative purposes, but also for the uh, setting at ease the society and the victim. But then also the victim needs to get that counseling. So we need to be motivated there. When it comes to like this individual you're speaking about, you know, here we have a situation where someone was the victim of a crime in a new environment. Um, people that she obviously wants to impress or get along with, doesn't know the atmosphere, doesn't know the, the, the power relationships. Most of the time, sexual offenses are a result of a power struggle. Um, you know, the, the reservation within oneself in that position is, well, the consequences could be so far reaching. I could lose my job. I mm. could, the, the, the word of mouth that would spread that I, you know, and it can very easily turn around to, oh, it was a, you know, it was a consensual act. So she's just saying that. Yeah. These, these are things that are incredibly difficult to counter. So that is why we create a normative, objective standard system where we can try and apply it to as many broad um, spheres and circumstances and situations as we can. Because we can't, we can't hope to process, evaluate every individualistic act on such a general sphere without acknowledging that there are going to be outliers, there are going to be things that don't fall as an exception. But what do we do? We create blanket laws that apply to everyone. And, and unfortunately, we can only hope for these things to be successful, for the societal change and demonstration of, of, of going forward to be successful when we complete the cycle in that good things must counteract the bad things. So I think, I think instilling a value system with people where it is incredibly important for you to go and, and, and lay, lay a complaint and go have a, a criminal docket open at a police station, it's incredibly important for people to stop doing that. Okay, well, let's actually then start there. Let's continue with that conversation. So something happens to me. I then go to a police station. One of the big problems, apparently, that I've been hearing at police stations is that they are met by male police officers who are, have no empathy, no compassion to take in a victim of the circumstance. And so one of the things that has come up for me a lot from women that I've been speaking about is having a female police officer that is trained to actually greet a victim with a sense of compassion and understanding and kindness. Um, is essential, which we, we don't have enough of. The other, the other thing that is lacking is apparently rape kits. Um, so, I mean, somebody was telling me the other day, a friend of hers was um, raped. She went to 
give her statement. They didn't have a rape kit. They said, yeah, you can give the statement, but it's got, not going to matter because we don't have any evidence that it actually happened. Like, that's what she was told. That's what she was greeted with at the police station, you know? Yes. And that, to me, is just, like, I mean, it's ridiculous. It needs to shift. So what is the best practice? What If, if something happens to an individual, what is the best practice? What exactly do you need to do? Can you go to a hospital and have the rape kit done there? where they, um, Or does it have to be at a police station? What is the information that women need to know? Sure. So typically and ordinarily speaking, you need to go to the nearest police station, either to where you live or where the crime took place. Offences of a sexual nature, be it sexual, sexual assault or, or rape or compelled rape, there, there are many, um, and I would advise your listeners to go and look up it and, and educate themselves because education is so important in, the, in these groups. Um, but when it comes to a sexual offence, you can go to any police station, um, preferably one that you either are acquainted with or if you are able to have someone attend with you, someone in a support role, go to a police station. It is incredibly important that you report the crime as soon as possible. The forensic evidence, the trace evidence of any sexual assault or sexually related uh, offence is best captured within a 72-hour time frame. So you can go to a hospital. You can go to your private doctor if your private doctor has the facilities and the equipment and the red kit. Um, otherwise, I'm sure they could refer you to a hospital nearby. Um, you know, I must admit that, that I, I've always been very reserved when even imagining myself going to a government hospital. I've been very fortunate that I've been able to attend a private hospitals, but I've actually heard wonderful things of some of the government hospitals that we have specifically here in Johannesburg, um, just being able to facilitate, provide comfort uh, when it comes to these sorts of things. Um, so the, the, the first step is to go and report the crime as soon as possible. So before you, going before going to do the rape kit, you go report the crime? You know, it, I don't want to give, I don't want to give a, a blanket answer here because it, it obviously is incredibly case sensitive and dependent. If the sexual assault or rape was coupled with, you know, incredibly, an incredibly violent physical assault, not that rape isn't a physical assault, but if you have taken um, serious injuries, you've sustained some very bad injuries, I would say go get that medical treatment as soon as possible, go to the hospital, and while you're there, ask for the rape kit. These things can be done with some confidence. If, if the doctor's there or the nurse is there, you can very easily say to them, listen, I was a victim of this incident. I would like to have a rape kit done, please. Now, if you, and I, and I want to be careful how I phrase this, you know, if you are able to go to the police station first, if you don't need to go to the hospital to have your injuries tended to immediately, go to the police station because then they can assist in the way going forward. Um, so and so if you go to the hospital, can they not call the police to the hospital? Do you have to go to a police station? Once again, sexual offences are unique here in that a sexual offence can be reported over the telephone. Um, you can call really? one of the various, 
Yes, yeah, you can. You, you can actually report the sexual offenders telephonically. Um, so if you were at the hospital, you could do so. And then depending on, on the availability of resources at the police station, if you call or if you manage to get through, there is a different unit that I want to just briefly speak of, the FCS unit. And they specifically deal with um, children who are victims of sexual assault. Um, but if you now get through to them, you can report the crime, they can make themselves available at the police station, um, or, or then you will be able to go and attend at the police station once you're done at the hospital. Hmm. Okay, that's good to know. I didn't know that. So that's, that's a good thing to know. Um, yeah. Because one of the, one of the things that's, that has come up with speaking to the various women as well in the last couple of weeks is that um, having somewhere outside of the police station to be able to report it just because they don't feel safe at the police station um, has been a question of, can we organize something like that? But the fact that you're saying that people can report it telephonically, then that solves that problem. Although do they still then after reporting it need to go to the police station at some point? I would assume so. So, you know, once again, it's it's very difficult to answer these questions with a with a broad answer. Um, what is required when opening a police docket or laying a complaint or or re, you know relaying the information of, of, of the offence, the sexual crime, is that they they need to take an A one witness statement. You need to have a J eighty eight medical form completed and. When, if those can be done, if the officers are in a position to have those done at the hospital, then I imagine it would be fine. Um, however, you know, if, if it is requested for you to go and attend at the police station, if it is necessary, then you're always more than welcome to have someone for moral and for moral support be there with you, um, a guardian, a friend, a partner. Um, they can go through and assist. I, I don't want to say yes or no because it, it obviously does depend. Okay. All right. But so would you be able to provide us with that phone number of, of being a, where people can report their, their assaults? So, so what I can tell you, the best thing that you want to do is, is, is Google. Um, if you okay. need to find the, the, the station number for a police station nearest to you, then you just need to, to go online. Um, I am happy to to get the information for you later, but I don't know I don't know a, a straight through hotline or offhand, unfortunately. Okay, no, 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 that's fine. No, I don't mean right now. I mean, will you get it even to even me the because 08, then I... you can call through and they can put you in contact with someone. O eight two ten triple one. Indeed, yeah. O eight two ten triple one. Okay, guys, I am writing that down. When I do publish the story afterwards on my social media platforms, um, specifically check out Step Up, Speak Up. I will put that number there and I'll speak to, um, I will get the right information to you guys. Okay, so, so that's, that's good news for me. But does it go, and that's a call center specifically for, um, for rape victims, for assault victims? Or is it just no, phoning so the police station? You would be phoning someone, the, the, the South African Police Service um, hotline. 
the emergency number and then they would navigate you they would ask you where you are they would navigate you to the relevant sector police stations have different units within them and at a specific police station there will be a uh, team or department that specifically focuses on sexual assaults or rapes uh, the sexual investigation units and they will then be trans they'll transfer your call to, to that uh, person or, or team to then deal with assisting you okay all right brilliant um what is important for a victim to kind of know and remember i mean the reason why i'm asking is i actually sued someone for sexual harassment um three years ago and um what was so interesting to me was literally the judge said to me she said um a woman who'd also been sexually harassed, by the way, uh, within her career, she said to me, just settle. She said, these cases are so hard. Like, it's just, the emo it's emotionally draining. It's like, it's time draining, everything draining. Like, just rather settle and let it go away. And she said, unless you have at least three times of hard evidence, written evidence of you saying no to this person, um, you it's very hard to kind of prove otherwise that it was you know not um a flirtation that got out of hand or whatever and i was so kind of taken aback because as a woman it's hard enough when a guy is sexually advancing you and you're going dude calm down you know step away like let's keep it this is a work relationship, you know, please like keep things clean. Now I have to actually put it in writing every time and like um, send it to someone so that I've got the right evidence. I mean, I was lucky because I recorded our conversations. And so I had that evidence. So although it wasn't written, it was there and I had WhatsApps. But for women who have gone through an assault, what is what are the things that she needs to kind of like her brain needs to, okay, this has happened to me. What do I need to do? What, what, what are the things I need to be aware of now? Obviously, the, the golden rule is as much information as possible, which, and, I, and I, I want to respect your story that you're telling me now, but I don't want to diminish what you're saying. Sexual harassment um, is obviously a lot easier to recollect and to capture the information yes. and then be able to relay that information as opposed to someone who's been the victim of a, of a rape. Our, our brains go into, they go into safety mode and we, yeah. uh, we, we do everything we can to protect ourselves from that trauma. So it, it's often very difficult for the police who, who are trying to do the best that they can in these circumstances to move forward with the doctor because you know, you, the, the victim actually isn't able to, to, to recollect the events and that's just because they've, they've, they've blocked it out from the personal trauma. So, Is that the reason why they get you to tell the story so many times? There, there, are, there are many motivations behind having someone retell um, the, their version. It's to make sure that there are consistencies um, throughout that they are able to very quickly and readily recollect certain key points of information because at the end of the day, the docket that is being compiled for the investigations by the police will then be taken to the National Prosecuting Authority and they will, because the state acts as dominus litis, um, 
in that the, the, the state is the one prosecuting the offender. They need to be in possession of as much information as they possibly can in order for their best evidence to be put forth against the accused. And, uh, you know, for the possible contemplation that you, you may be called as a witness, you know, you'll obviously have to, to give that sort of evidence. And we want to always make sure that individuals who are going to be giving information or evidence under oath are as well um, as well as prepared as they can be. And that doesn't speak to staging or, or, or the netis, or me preparing a witness, but rather ensuring that the, the details that someone gives us are as consistent as they possibly can be, because you need to make sure that the truth always comes out. Um, but just going, going back to answer that question, the, the, I mean, the, the best starting point is the identity of the attacker or the harasser, um, the, the, the person who's committed the offense against you, the identity is the starting point. Um, it's always good to cover your W's, the when, where, who, why. Um, when, where, when, where, who, why. And I, I think the other important thing just to mention, because although it seems completely obvious, one of the first things you want to do when something has happened to you is shower. It's like you just want to wash yourself clean. Like it, it, it's literally one of the first things that, you know, you just want to get it, get the experience off you and, um, and not showering and going to get the rape kit, getting that evidence. Surely that is, that evidence must play a big part in being able to bring someone in. No, it's, it, it's, it's an immensely huge role. Um, you, if, <laughs> I'm trying not to be incredibly vulgar, um, but if your if you if any of the penetration has occurred in your mouth, um, it, it's advisable that you don't even drink any fluids. Um, and obviously, that's you know these things can be difficult to comprehend. But preserving the integrity of trace evidence is incredibly important, mm. um, and that's why when I spoke earlier, that 72-hour period, that's how long. Um, or the, that's, the, that's the immediate best time frame wherein DNA samples can be collected. That doesn't mean that should the 72-hour time period lapse that you shouldn't go and present or, or have swabs done for forensic evidence. Um, but yeah, it, it is a problem where you want to wash yourself clean and, and wash away the experience, and you're actually washing away things that could be incredibly useful Mm. Um, in prosecuting the the accused. So I think maybe for the listeners, uh, a kind of rule of thumb, because every assault is different and every experience is different, wherever there has been contact, so whether it is in the mouth, whether it is um, just, you know, in your vagina, whether it is um, your butt, whatever it is, wherever there has been contact, do not wash it, do not drink anything, do not wipe anything, just go straight to a clinic or to a police station to get the rape kit done and collect as much evidence as possible. Is there a way for women, if they are in a difficult situation, to somehow collect evidence 
as well. Like I know that um, that doctors often take like an earbud. I mean, it's sterilized and everything, and swab. Um, would grabbing a jiffy bag and earbuds and swabbing your mouth and sticking them in the jiffy bag kind of thing would that be something to do you know unfortunately we, we now delve into a realm that i am just not, okay. not a fan or acquainted with at all but I, you know my mom and i watched a lot of csi growing up together and um it, the, the difficulty is it's it's where you can least expect it you know if there is if there's resistance on your part um, and you are, you know, brushing your hands off or scratching at the, the offender, you can get skin. If, the, if you scratch, you manage to scratch them, you can get skin under your fingernails. And I don't think that's something that we will often think, especially, you know, in the post-traumatic stages or, or after it's been committed, you wouldn't necessarily think to, um, you know, get, collect things under your fingernail. The difficulty is where logically I think, yes, getting a swab yourself might be a great idea. I don't want to give that advice and it turns out I'm completely wrong and okay. uh, you shouldn't do it. So I, I think I think the golden rule and the thread to follow there is simply that if it happens, go to a professional as soon as you possibly can. Okay. Um, we're running out of time, but I do have two more questions. Um, from... A legal standpoint is there any like um getting a restraining order because i've heard that they just are a waste of time like for so many women you know they get a restraining order and it doesn't stop the person from coming like what is the point i know the point of the restraining order in inverted commas is to keep that person at a distance but if it's not if it's not really working or helping, like should you still get one anyway because it gives you a leg to stand on later on if something happens or if you're not feeling protected by the restraining order, is there a point in even getting one? So I do, you know, I've, I've done quite a couple of them and they, I mean, firstly, they can be done whether the person that you've been a victim of any form of assault is known to you, perhaps a previous boyfriend, a previous spouse, um, or if it's a stranger, getting the protection order against someone is, I want to say, relatively easy. You, you make application through um, potentially domestic violence courts, and you would set out the reasons why you should be um, afforded protection from this individual. But the difficulty is, it merely serves as a means to dissuade that person from breaching those contact guidelines. Um, so where example would be no contact or no communication because should, should they breach once the protection order has been granted and, and put in place, should they then breach those communication uh, prohibitions, they would then be held in contempt of court and then face um, liability on the breach of that protection order but you know it, it's i want to very loosely describe it as a very big scare tactic that does and it has in the past and does continue to afford people protection um okay. but obviously no it's it's you know it's not a it's not you're not putting up a a massive wall around you hmm. you're simply saying to someone that if you make if you breach these communication or contact prohibitions, then 
you're going to face the consequences of such. Mm. Okay. Um, there's actually two other things I want to ask you, but we're totally running out of time. Um, Justin, we were speaking about the fact that, um, and maybe this is, maybe we need to do a whole nother one on this. Um, when I found out that it can cost between 500 and a thousand rand to get someone out on bail, I just, I was horrified. I was like for a sexual assault or a murder to, to allow someone out on bail for that. And, and we started a discussion and we didn't get to really finish it. Cause I said to you, no, I think we need to have this discussion on air and I'm looking at the time and I'm really needing to finish. So would you be willing to come back and just address that? Because I also want to address um, for people the, the fact that you are a criminal lawyer and, um, and I, I probably threw you off track yesterday when I said to you, why? Why are you defending criminals, you know? But no, it's what I, as I said, it's what I'm used to. It's the first thing that comes up in, in civil conversation. And, and it, but it's, it was important to me to know your motivation so that I knew who I was bringing onto this platform. And, um, and I think you should maybe just share that with um, the listeners, your motivation for being a criminal lawyer, because um, I think a lot of people have that kind of wariness around criminal lawyers because some, I don't doubt that some people are doing it for money or for, do you know what I'm saying? But I think that there are a lot of, I don't support, again, guys listening and girls, I don't support the men are trash movement. I do not support the fact that all men are trash. I do not believe it. I do not support it. I believe that we have many, many, many millions and billions of very good men. I think that this is a societal issue, a behavioral issue that needs to change and needs to be addressed. But um, I do believe, and I might be crazy, I believe in the goodness of humanity. I do. Um, and I'll continue to do so, and I'll continue to have these discussions so that we can find ways to bring out the goodness in humanity. And when you told me your motivation, it really, it made me go, okay, you're the right person to discuss this with. Um, so maybe just, thank you. I think maybe just clarify for people why you are a criminal lawyer. You know, it's, um, everyone just, everyone deserves to ensure that they're, rights are always being looked after. Um, my position, as I've always seen it, is to keep the state in check, to make sure that people who are either falsely accused, wrongfully arrested, wrongfully imprisoned, and those who have committed offenses, which is the hardest one for people to sort of appreciate and accept, is that Everyone deserves the right to a fair trial. It's, it's protected and enshrined in our constitution. We have a wonderful constitution. And that doesn't mean that someone who has committed a crime doesn't deserve to be punished. I believe that appropriate sentences should be passed proportional to the offenses committed. But we need to make sure that individual freedoms, rights are protected throughout the entire process because in ensuring that a, a mechanical gear functions correctly, then you make sure all the cogs function correctly, that the machine as itself as a whole works better. So the, the better job I do, I think the better job the state does, um, and the better job a state does, the better society's looked after and kept in check. Great, Justin, I'm, I'm so sorry that it, it's been such a long um, interview. But I really appreciate you being with 
me for this time. And I definitely would love to have you back on at some point soon. Um, this is Justin Howard. You guys can all say goodbye to him. Um, but yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. I do want to get you back because I do want to talk about um, where our um, law system is failing us and what, what, where, what we can do as a society to kind of, I don't know, balance that out, I suppose. And I know that that's hard for you because you're a lawyer and you believe in the law. Um, but you're also a human being that lives in South Africa. And I'm sure you can see where both sides of the story. Um, so it would be lovely to have 100%. you back on that. Um, and for, no, all of you for all of you listening, please don't go away. I need to play a little bit of music. We've now been speaking for 45 minutes straight. Um, and so I'm going to play a few tunes and I will be back in just a second.